Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 244, Response to Branson, Part 2, Early Orthodox Trinitarians. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I will explain why I disagree with Dr. Branson's historical narrative when he claims that this idea of a tripersonal God comes in very late to the Eastern tradition. In my view, it's there just about as early as it is anywhere, and it certainly doesn't wait around until the late Middle Ages or the early modern period to come into Orthodox thinking. So I'm going to focus on one Orthodox theologian from the 4th century, a council from the 6th century, and another famous Orthodox theologian from the 8th century. And I will show that each of these presupposes the idea of a triune God, of a tripersonal God. In my sense, these are Trinitarian theologians. Okay, so what about these Cappadocian fathers that Dr. Branson focuses so strongly on? He seems to choose them as just the paradigms of what counts as properly Trinitarian theology. Well, I'm going to give you two out of three. I'm going to punt on the third one. So Basil of Caesarea, I have read all of his writings on the Trinity in translation. I know a little bit of Greek, but I'm not good at it. So I rely mostly on the translators and sometimes I try to look things up and uh, see if the Greek's going to make a difference. I've read all of Basil of Caesarea, and I've written a chapter on this for a forthcoming book. God knows when it'll ever get out, but I've come to the conclusion that basically Basil of Caesarea is a conservative who is convinced that the Nicenes are right, and so he's just going to assert, like Athanasius and Hilary and others, that the homoousion is this all-important claim, and it's the key to theology. And he does indeed sometimes say that the one God is the Father, which is exactly what Origen thought and what other influential people in both East and West had thought in previous times. And yet, at the same time, he's an Nicene, and he claims that the three of them share the universal divinity. And he's clear that this property divinity is a universal. So this is a property that can be instantiated or be fully present in some sense in multiple things of that type. So if you believe in the universal humanity, this is fully present in me and in Dr. Branson and in Donald Trump. And these are three humans, three human beings. And Basil makes clear that the hypostases of the triad are beings. They're individual realities. Like I'm an individual reality, or Dr. Branson is an individual reality, or Donald Trump is an individual reality. So he's got three beings, not modes, not something or others, three beings. Each of these beings has the divine essence. That just means that there are at least three gods. If I say there are three beings and they each have humanity, that is to say that there are at least three humans. Apparently, a great number of Basil's opponents within the Catholic movement, within mainstream Christianity, loudly objected to him constantly that, hey, bro, you're a tritheist. And he said, no, I'm not, because the Father's God, or there's one nature, or you can't count 
in this matter. And, you know, he, he kind of flailed around and tried out a bunch of bad answers. I mean, he just was a tritheist. Now he didn't mean to be, he meant to be a monotheist. And he does say the father is the one God. And yet, even though he says the father is the one God, he just flatly tells you that there are two other gods. He doesn't put it that way because that would sound bad. He says there are two other hypostases, two other beings, and each of these beings has the divine nature just as much as the Father does. So if you add in facts about generation and procession, this doesn't obviously help. I mean, why can't you have tritheism where the second and third God eternally come from the first God? So in my view, Basil dies and has never solved this problem. And it's just still out there. So the two famous Gregories, Gregory of Nyssa died in 395, and that was Basil of Caesarea's younger brother. And on him, I'm going to punt. I would like to interview Dr. Branson sometime about what Dr. Branson thinks Gregory's views are. I find them incredibly convoluted. He is more of a philosopher, but honestly, I don't think a good one. Is he Trinitarian is one question, and is he coherently Trinitarian, or does he mix it with Unitarian views is another question. And uh, just what is his understanding of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit? That's what I'm going to punt on. I've read a ton of Gregory. I've read people trying to explain Gregory and specifically his views about universals. As of right now, his views do not make sense to me, so I'm not going to say anything about them right now. All I'm going to say right now is that a major thing that he was concerned with was solving this problem of tritheism. Because if you say there are three beings, each of whom have the divine essence, that is just to say that there are three gods. To have the essence of a certain type is to be a thing of that type. To have the essence divinity, if you believe in these universal essences, that is to be a god, a divine being. And there are three divine beings, and that looks like tritheism, not monotheism. If you just say, well, it is monotheism, why is that? Is it because there's only one Father, or is it because there's only one Trinity? You might say both. That wouldn't make any sense. Gregory of Nazianzus died in 390, and he was a kind of friend and younger associate of Basil of Caesarea, and he was pressed into service uh, as part of the kind of ecclesial maneuverings of the time. And uh, he ended up actually presiding over the Council of Constantinople in 381. So presumably he was in on the deliberations there, although he bitterly quit it. I won't go into the story of why right now, but he was a, a great orator, a big talker, a professional big talker. And he was later dubbed Gregory the Theologian by tradition. So was he Trinitarian? Or did he hold to the monarchy of the Father as understood by Dr. Branson, where the Father just is the one true God? That's your monotheism right there. Oh, and also there are these other divine persons. Well, if that had been his view, one point is he wouldn't have solved Basil's tritheism problem. He would just be stuck with it. He would just be caught flat-footed on that issue. But I'll come back to that when we eventually talk about definitions. Now, Dr. Branson makes heavy weather of a quotation from Oration 25 by Gregory of Nazianzus. And yes, in that quotation, he does talk about one God unbegotten, the Father. And so it sounds like he just thinks the one God is the Father, not the Trinity. And he doesn't believe in a triune God. Rather, he believes in a unipersonal God, which is just the Father. 
Yeah, but after this passage, he launches into this riff about the Trinity is somehow a golden mean in between the polytheism of the Greeks and the stingy monotheism of the Jews. And he goes on to insist that really there are three who are divine here. And a little later, a couple pages later than his quotation, this is section 17 in the oration, he says, Unity is worshipped in Trinity and Trinity in unity, both its union and its distinction miraculous. And then he goes into this thing, don't worry about generation and procession. That's not uh, anything bad or that should make you worry about monotheism. And then in section 18, he says something which I think is revealing because he brings up this three gods objection, this tritheism objection that had dogged his older associate, Basil of Caesarea. Now, if Branson's correct in interpreting Gregory of Nazianzus, he should have an easy answer, which is there aren't three gods here. There's only one God here because there's only one father here. The father just is the one God. No, that doesn't answer all the questions. But anyway, that, that should be what he says. Okay. But what he actually does is he basically obfuscates and pours scorn on philosophy and reason. So after he said, don't worry about uh, generation and procession, he says this, neither show a perverse reverence for divine monarchy by contracting or truncating deity, nor feel embarrassed when you are accused of worshiping three gods. Someone else is equally liable to a charge of worshiping two. For you will either manage to rebut the charge in common with him, or you will be in common difficulty, or else his deity will founder along with his arguments while yours will remain intact. Even if your powers of reasoning are not up to the task, it is still better to falter with rational arguments directed by the spirit than to adopt easy but impious solutions out of indolence. Be contemptuous of objections and counter-arguments, and the newfangled piety and piddling wisdom more contemptuous than of spider's webs, which can snare a fly but are easily snagged by a wasp, not to mention a finger or anything with some mass behind it. Be our instructor in our learning to fear one thing alone, seeing our faith dissolve into sophistics. It is not terrible to be bested in argument, since skillful argumentation is not a universal attainment. What is terrible is experiencing the loss of one's God because hope is universal to all. Okay, look, he's basically scaremongering. He's saying, there are objections here. Okay, you can't answer those objections, but you don't want to lose God, do you? Better to sally forth with arguments that don't work than to just agree in a position that makes sense. Really? well, if it doesn't make sense and it's not defensible, why are we so sure that this latter-day Nicene view is correct? And indeed, what is that view? Gregory of Nazianzus, as I read him, does, when he says Trinity, sometimes mean a triad, just God, God's Son, and God's Spirit, or God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He uses Trinity as a plural referring term sometimes, but also he uses Trinity sometimes as a singular referring term intended to refer to the one true God, the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I expound a couple of passages in Gregory of Nazianzus that I claim do involve a triune God. Mm. 
the first passage I want to look at is from the famous fifth theological oration, also called Oration 31 by Gregory of Nazianzus. And here I'm using a recent translation by Lionel Wickham, and I'll have a link to the book on the blog post for this episode. What he's doing in this lecture is he's directly confronting the objection, hey, how can you say that the Holy Spirit is the same usia as the Father and the Son? Where did this language come from? This is not traditional language. Just as it had been controversial to say the Father and Son are one usia back in 325, and that eventually led to decades of disputes, for this very reason, people like Basil of Caesarea were very hesitant to say, in fact, he never did say that the Holy Spirit is homoousion, that is one essence with the Father and the Son, although I think he implied it, but he knew it would be controversial to say it, so he didn't. But we've advanced another stage now, and Gregory of Nazianzus is just straight up asserting that the Holy Spirit is one essence with the Father and the Son. So eventually he gets into the obvious tritheism objection, which at this point had been around for many years, and in my view had never really been satisfactorily answered. But Gregory of Nazianzus does think he has an answer to this, and he does have a kind of answer, which I think goes clearly beyond Basil of Caesarea, so he raises this objection in section 13. He says, if it is asserted, we use the word God three times, must there not be three gods? And then he wastes a whole paragraph saying, well, haha, you guys have two gods, so you're in the same boat as us. Of course, that answer doesn't get you anywhere. Um, he's talking about people who agree that the Father and Son are the same usia, but don't agree that the Holy Spirit is. But he gives a more positive answer in section 14. He says, we have one God because there is a single Godhead. So the word Godhead here, he's not using this in the modern fashion as a plural referring term for the Trinity or the triad. He's not using Godhead to mean Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's using Godhead to mean the divine nature. And talk about natures in ancient philosophy is ambiguous, of course, and a nature can be the same thing as an essence, like a universal essence, or a nature can be a being. So in this sense, I'm a nature and you're a nature, and we share human nature, but we're using nature in two different meanings there. So Theotes is the divine nature, the traditional translation is Godhead, I'm going to say the divine nature here and go against the translator because that will help you to see more clearly the ambiguity that he's playing on in this passage. It's part of Nicene Orthodoxy at this time to say that divine nature is shared by the three of them. That's what the one shared usia is. It's the divine nature. What he wants to say is there's only one God because there's one divine nature. Well, conveniently, there's another mean of nature to just mean being. Then the divine nature would be God. Let's listen to what he says. Again, I'm going to substitute the divine nature for the Godhead in the translation. We have one God because there is a single divine nature. Though there are three objects of belief, they derive from the single whole and have reference to it. They do not have degrees of being God or degrees of priority over against one another. They are not sundered in will or divided in power. You cannot find there any of the properties inherent in things divisible. To express it succinctly, the divine nature exists undivided in beings divided. So this Godhead, as I understand Gregory, is the triune God. 
The divine nature just is God himself. It's God who exists in three persons. So in my view, this is a properly Trinitarian theology. He continues, It is as if there were a single intermingling of light, which existed in three mutually connected suns. When we look at the divine nature, the primal cause, the soul sovereignty, we have a mental picture of the single whole, certainly. But when we look at the three in whom the divine nature exists, and at those who derive their timeless and equally glorious being from the primal cause, we have three objects of worship. So there's one God, that's the divine nature. There are three objects of worship, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in a sense, the two are not different. The three really are three beings, but they are three beings in which exists the one God, or so I claim. So for the next couple of sections, he spins his wheels trying to answer tritheism objections again that are being pressed against him. I mean, can't you still count three gods here? And he's making some pretty unclear linguistic and metaphysical moves. But rather than go through all those agonies, I want to focus on the end of his talk. So picking it up in 31, he comes back to this issue of the divine nature, which again, I take it he means the divine being, the one God, the triune God, this one being which manifests or exists as three different beings, divine persons. Once he's done with all the polemical back and forth and haha, you have a problem too and this kind of stuff. Then he tries to end on a positive note, and I think this is where you get his actual views more than in the back and forth. Without assaulting you with all the details of his discussion, he basically says that he can't come up with any good model of the Trinity, or he would say any good analogy for how the three are related to one another. So basically, it doesn't make sense to him. He doesn't have a positive and in any way adequate grasp of what the Trinity is. But notice what he says at the very end. So in the end, I resolved that it was best to say goodbye to images and shadows, deceptive and utterly inadequate as they are to express the reality. I resolved to keep close to the more truly religious view and rest content with some few words, taking the Spirit as my guide, and in his company and in partnership with him, safeguarding to the end the genuine illumination I had received from him as I strike out a path through this world. To the best of my powers, I will persuade all men to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a single divine nature and power, because to him belong all glory, honor, and might forever and ever. Amen. Who's the him? It's the triune God. It's this single Godhead and power the single divine nature. The single divine nature is the Father, and it is the Son, and it is the Holy Spirit. Somehow it exists in those three ways while being one single divine being. Yes, I think that's Trinitarian. It's also Mysterian. He doesn't really know how to think about this one God, this divine nature, and yet he's confident that it has been revealed to him. He's confident that he has this kind of non-rational insight into this reality. The second passage I wanted to discuss is Gregory of Nazianzus's oration on holy baptism, which was a talk given in the year 381, same year as that crucial council. And uh, he does, I think, refer to the Trinity as God along the way, but I'm going to pick it up way far into the talk in section 41, 
And again, when it says Godhead, I'm going to say divine nature. And this is the old Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers translation from late 19th century. He says in section 41, Besides all this and before all, keep, I pray you, the good deposit by which I live and work and which I desire to have as the companion of my departure, with which I can endure all that is so distressful and despise all delights, the confession of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. This I commit unto you today. With this I will baptize you and make you grow. This I give you to share and to defend all your life, the one divine nature and power found in the three in unity and comprising the three separately, not unequal in substances or natures, neither increased nor diminished by superiorities or inferiorities, in every respect equal, in every respect the same, just as the beauty and the greatness of the heavens is one, the infinite conjunction of the three infinite ones, each God considered in himself as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Holy Ghost, the three, one God, when contemplated together, each God because consubstantial, one God because of the monarchia. In other words, they're one God because... The Father has given the divine nature to the other two. It's that nature sharing which makes them one God. He continues, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one, so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch, and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. And then he talks about generation, and how that doesn't threaten uh, the equality of the persons of the Trinity, or make one of them a creature. And then in section 43, I think he gives you his other answer to the tritheism objection. So his first answer is, well, actually, they're really one God because there's one divine nature there. There's one God seen in the three persons. That's the divine nature. So there's your one God. It's the Trinity. His other reply, though, is that if it still seems like tritheism, well, I'll let you hear it and try to figure out what this other answer is. So he says, I should like to call the Father greater, because from him flows both the equality and the being of the equals. This will be granted on all hands. But I am afraid to use the word origin, lest I should make him the origin of inferiors, and thus insult him by precedencies of honor. For the lowering of those who are from him is no glory to the source. Moreover, I look with suspicion at your insatiate desire, for fear you should take hold of this word greater, and divide the nature." In other words, divide God, the divine nature. For fear you should take hold of this word greater and divide the nature, using the word greater in all senses, whereas it does not apply to the nature, but only to origination. For in the consubstantial persons there is nothing greater or less in point of substance. I would honor the Son as Son before the Spirit, but baptism consecrating me through the Spirit does not allow of this. But are you afraid of being reproached with tritheism? Okay, here's his answer. Do you take possession of this good thing, the unity in the three, and leave me to fight the battle? 
Okay. So he's saying take position of the one God, which is manifest in three beings. There's one divine nature, so it can't be tritheism. If it still looks like tritheism to you, because there are three beings, each of which has a, has the divine nature, here's his answer. Let me be the shipbuilder, and do you use the ship? Or if another is the builder of the ship, take me for the architect of the house, and do you live in it with safety, though you have spent no labor upon it? You shall not have a less prosperous voyage or less safe habitation than I who built them, because you have not labored upon them. See how great is my indulgence. See the goodness of the Spirit. The war shall be mine, yours the achievement. I will be under fire, and you shall live in peace. Okay, so what he's saying is, I understand these things. You don't need to. You just need to receive from me this wonderful teaching of the divine nature that's in three beings. You just need to accept this triune God from me, and I'll take all the heat, and you just enjoy all the wonderful benefits of fellowship with the triune God. And this, frankly, is his elitist view. He thinks he is one of the few pure and spiritual people who can really grasp these truths because of his holiness of life and his asceticism and his study of philosophy and scripture. He thinks he is one of the enlightened ones, and most people are not able to reach his level of achievement, and so most people should just take his word for it. In the next section, 45, he does condescend to say a little bit more than just trust me. He says, let us go within the cloud, like the cloud of divine glory on the holy mountain. He says, give me the tables of your heart. I will be your Moses, though this will be a bold thing to say. I will write on them with the finger of God, a new decalogue. I will write on them a shorter method of salvation, and if there be any heretical or unreasoning beast, let him remain below, or he will run the risk of being stoned by the word of truth. I will baptize you and make you a disciple in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And these three have one common name, the divine nature. That is to say, the Godhead. And you shall know, both by appearances and by words, that you reject all ungodliness and are united to all the divine nature. And then he goes off talking about creation, the incarnation, and so on. And he ends up by saying, This is all that may be divulged of the sacrament, and that is not forbidden to the ear of the many. The rest you shall learn within the church by the grace of the Holy Trinity, and those matters you shall conceal within yourself, sealed and secure. The grace of the Holy Trinity, right, the grace granted by the unique divine nature, the triune God. Another writing called The Oration on the Holy Lights. I'm not sure what the date of this is. I think it's late, though, in his life. This is in section 11, starting on page 355 in the old edition of his works. Gregory says, When I speak of God, you must be illumined at once by one flash of light and by three. Three in individualities or hypostases, if any prefer so to call them, or persons, for we will not quarrel about names so long as the syllables amount to the same meaning. 
but one in respect of the substance, that is, the divine nature. For they are divided without division, if I may so say, and they are united in division. Okay, he's mystery-mongering there. He continues, For the divine nature is one in three, and the three are one in whom the divine nature is, or to speak more accurately, who are the divine nature. Right? There's your triune God. It's the divine nature, that one thing which is Father, which is Son, and which is Holy Spirit. Excesses and defects we will omit, neither making the unity a confusion, nor the division a separation. For we would keep equally far from the confusion of Sibelius, and from the division of Arius, which are evils diametrically opposed, yet equal in their wickedness. For what need is there heretically to fuse God together, or to cut him up into inequality? Okay, so this is just traditional rhetoric, bashing to extremes and saying, hey, we're, we're the happy middle here. And notice that this God, who should not be fused together, nor should he be cut apart, that's the triune God, that is to say, the divine nature. That's what he's talking about there. He continues section 12, and Dr. Branson may think that this supports his view on a first glance. Gregory says, For to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Right? And he's quoting Paul there, 1 Corinthians 8. And one Holy Ghost, in whom are all things. Of course, he added that last bit. Yet these words of, by, in, whom, do not denote a difference of nature. For if this were the case, the three prepositions, or the order of the three names, would never be altered but they characterize the personalities of a nature which is one and unconfused. So the personalities, I think the persons, are persons of one nature. That's the divine nature, the triune God. So even though he's reproducing earlier non-Trinitarian scriptural language that doesn't presuppose a triune God, he is expressing belief in a triune God in this passage and he talks about generation and procession a bit, and then he ends this section by saying, There is then one God in three, and these three are one, as we have said. So the one God in the three is the divine nature, divine being, the Trinity. These three are one, one what? They're one God, because there's one nature in the three of them. Is this paradoxical? Yes, he thinks it is. He thinks it can't really be understood, but it can only sort of be glimpsed incompletely by the truly holy, the truly spiritual, insightful folk like himself. Another passage, which is his last farewell when he's about to leave Constantinople and go into retirement. This is actually during the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. He's resigning as president of that and... Of course, there's a lot of interesting historical material in here, but he wants to get in one last partisan push for his understanding of theology. This is in section 15, page 390 of the Old Translation. One concise proclamation of our teaching, an inscription intelligible to all, is this people which so sincerely worships the Trinity that it would sooner sever anyone from this life than sever one of the three from the Godhead of one mind, of equal zeal, and united to one another 
to us and to the Trinity by unity of doctrine. Briefly to run over its details, that which is without beginning, and is the beginning, and is with the beginning, in other words, Father, Son, and Spirit, he continues, is one God, right, the triune God. He goes on to say that they have one nature, a little bit farther down. Now the name of that which has no beginning is the Father, and of the beginning the Son, and of that which is with the beginning the Holy Ghost, and the three have one nature, God. And the union is the Father from whom and to whom the order of persons runs its course, not so as to be confounded, but so as to be possessed without distinction of time, of will, or of power. For these things in our case produce a plurality of individuals. Each of them is separate both from every other quality and from every other individual possession of the same quality. But to those who have a simple nature and whose essence is the same, the term one belongs in its highest sense. So the Trinity are one in the highest sense. One what? One God. One God there is the divine nature. The divine nature is in some sense in equally shared by three persons. He goes on to mystery monger and to try to answer objections and so on. Toward the end, section 25, he mentions the Trinity itself, whom you and I alike worship. In other words, that's the one God that we worship. Section 27, he's giving this bunch of overwrought farewells to the city and to the people and so on. He says, Last of all and most of all, I will cry, Farewell, ye angels, guardians of this church and of my presence and pilgrimage, since our affairs are in the hands of God. Farewell, O Trinity, my meditation and my glory. Mayest thou be preserved by those who are here, and preserve them, my people, for they are mine, even if I have my place assigned elsewhere. So he's praying to the triune God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another passage, which I claim shows that Gregory of Nazianzus believed in a triune God. I've noticed this transition in the use of the word Trinity before the late 300s. Trinity always means just the triad, God, the Logos, and the Spirit of God. It's just a plural referring term like the three musketeers. The three musketeers isn't a guy and it's not a being. It's just a way of referring to those three guys, whatever their names are collectively. So trios and trinitas early on are always used that way. Obviously, Augustine talks about the Trinity as the one God, so as a singular referring term, referring to the one God. And when does this transition occur? What's the earliest use of Trinity to mean the triune God and not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which, you know, in earlier times were understood as being three beings, period, not as comprising one God. The earliest case I have found actually is in the work of Gregory of Nazianzus in his Oration 6, 
which scholars date to 364, and this is in the recent translation by Martha Vinson. This is a talk supposed to be given at Nazianzus. So in the middle of the talk, section 13, he refers to the honored and holy trinity. Now, what does he mean here? Is this the plural referring term? It's just the triad, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or is the trinity one being here, that is, one God? Well, it's the latter. He immediately goes on to say, For this too, that is the trinity, both is and is believed in faith to be one God, as much for its inner harmony as for its identity of substance. So what he's saying is that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one God because they share one nature, and also because they've got some inner cooperation and harmony. Later he would say, I think, that there's one power manifest there. At the end of the talk, he says this, Guarding the truth that we have received from our fathers, reverencing Father and Son and Holy Spirit, knowing the Father in the Son, the Son in the Holy Spirit, in which names we have been baptized, in which we believe, and under which we have been enlisted, dividing them before combining them, and combining them before dividing them, and not regarding the three as a single individual, for they are not without individual reality, nor do they comprise a single reality, as though our treasure lay in names and not an actual fact, but rather believing the three to be a single entity, for they are a single entity, not an individual reality, but in divinity, a unity worshipped in trinity, and a trinity summed up into unity, venerable as one whole, as one whole royal, sharing the same throne, sharing the same glory, above space, above time, uncreated, indivisible, impalpable, uncircumscribed, its internal ordering known only to itself, but for us equally the object of reverence and adoration, and alone taking possession of the holy of holies, and excluding all of creation, part by the first veil and part by the second. The first veil separates the heavenly angelic realm from the Godhead, and the second our world from that of the heavens. These things, my brothers, let us do, and such let our devotion be. And as for those who disagree, let us regard them as a plague against the truth, and make every effort to help them and heal them. But if they are not receptive to cure, let us turn away from them, lest they infect us with their affliction before we give them of our own health. And the God of peace, which passes all understanding, will be with us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so... Is there just one God and that's the Father? No, it looks like the one God here is the Trinity. And there's the mystery mongering. They're divided and not divided. They're one individual and they're not. There are three beings here, but there's a single entity here. That entity is the divine nature, which is to say the triune God. So I think that talk of Trinity is the earliest that I'm aware of, of a tripersonal God in the year 364. However, there is a major caveat, and that is that at the end of his life, Gregory of Nazianzus, who is very self-consciously a writer, he gathered together and edited his writings, both his letters, his orations, and his poems. This is one of his orations. It's likely that he has cleaned up and revised and finished this talk, originally given in the 360s, here at the end of his life, years after the 381 Council. So unfortunately, it's not a clear-cut case of a very early use of the word Trinity as a singular referring term, referring to the triune God. 
it could be that it's surprising to me that there would be a passage like this from anyone in the 360s. I recall seeing it only starting in the 370s in other writers. But um, anyway, it's possible that he could have uh, drawn that conclusion that early, that the divine nature makes the triad into one God because the divine nature is the triune God. Okay, so, so far in this episode, the dispute has been about what Gregory of Nazianzus thought. And you know what? I could be wrong. The bigger issue is the dueling narratives that Dr. Branson and I are presenting. In my view, this idea of a triune God comes in right around this time, around the time of the Second Ecumenical Council, and you see it immediately in the West, in people like Augustine, but not only in Augustine, but in other late uh, 4th and, and many 5th century sources in the West. And I claim you also see it in the East. Never mind Gregory of Nazianzus. I say the idea of a triune God comes into official statements a lot earlier than Dr. Branson thinks. I mean, if you want to see an official use of what I would call properly Trinitarian language, that is reference to a triune God, I don't think you have to look any farther than the Fifth Ecumenical Council, that is Constantinople II, in the year 553. Now, they don't need to mention the triune God in the uh, Third and Fourth Ecumenical Councils, I think, because the subject was completely on Christology, and they're just presupposing that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God throughout the whole discussion. But in 553, they say in section 1, If anyone will not confess that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one nature or substance, that they have one power and authority, that there is a consubstantial trinity, one deity to be adored in three subsistences or persons, let him be anathema. There is a consubstantial trinity, and it says that they are meon theoteta, one divine nature. This translation says one deity. Right, one God. One God, it says, to be adored in three subsistences or persons. So there's one triune God. This one God is in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit. Now it goes on to give the traditional language, which doesn't sound Trinitarian. There is one God and Father from whom all things come, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are. Again, that's basically quoting Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, but now adding what's become traditional to add, and one Holy Spirit in whom all things are. So it's calling the Father the one God, right? That's traditional. You have to do that. It's in the first two ecumenical creeds, and it's very up front and center in the New Testament. And yet they're also slapping on top of that something that really isn't consistent with it, which is the view that there is one God, not the Father alone, but the Trinity, the tripersonal God. One last indisputably Eastern source is the famous St. John of Damascus, sometimes considered sort of the last church father. John of Damascus died perhaps around the middle of the 700s. He's very conservative and he's kind of trying to sum up all the work by the earlier church fathers, particularly the ones that Dr. Branson likes to focus on. To me, John of Damascus is clearly a Trinitarian in the sense that he believes in a triune God. And this is in his big work on the Orthodox faith, but I think it's maybe clearer in his famous work entitled On Heresies. This is how that work finishes up. And again, when I see the word Godhead in the translation, I'm going to say the divine nature. 
which of course can mean either the divine universal essence or the divine being, like God. This is how On Heresies ends. These heresies detailed above have been described in brief because, although they amount to but a hundred altogether, all the rest come from them. The Catholic Church has kept itself away from all these, as from so many pitfalls, and, instructed by the Holy Trinity, it teaches rightly and religiously, and cries out, We believe in Father and Son and Holy Ghost, one divine nature in three hypostases, one will, one operation, alike in three persons, wisdom incorporeal, uncreated, immortal, incomprehensible, without beginning, unmoved, unaffected, without quantity, without quality, ineffable, immutable, unchangeable, uncontained, equal in glory, equal in power, equal in majesty, equal in might, equal in nature, exceedingly substantial, exceedingly good, thrice radiant, thrice bright, thrice brilliant. Light is the Father, Light the Son, light the Holy Ghost. Wisdom the Father, wisdom the Son, wisdom the Holy Ghost. One God, and not three gods. One Lord, the Holy Trinity, discovered in three hypostases. Right, he's just mentioned the Trinity as the one God there. He continues, Father is the Father, and unbegotten. Son is the Son, begotten and not unbegotten. For he is from the Father, Holy Ghost, not begotten, but proceeding, for he is from the Father. There is nothing created, nothing of the first and second order, nothing of Lord and servant, but there is unity and trinity. There was, there is, and there shall be forever, which is perceived and adored by faith, by faith, not by inquiry, nor by searching out, nor by visible manifestation. For the more he is sought out, the more he is unknown. And the more he is investigated, the more he is hidden. Who is the he here? Well, it's the triune God, as you're about to hear. He continues. And so, let the faithful adore God with a mind that is not over-curious, and believe that he is God in three hypostases, although the manner in which he is so is beyond manner, for God is incomprehensible. Do not ask how the Trinity is Trinity, for the Trinity is inscrutable. Okay, so the one God just is the Trinity. This is a confession of a triune God. If you want to know how that works, because didn't you just say that those are three different beings also? Well, I'm not going to tell you how it works. That's his answer. He then goes on to say, look, you don't understand all these other things, like how your own mind works. Still, he he can't make himself stop, so he goes on to offer some analogies. Think of the Father as a spring of life, begetting the Son like a river, and the Holy Ghost like a sea, for the spring and the river and the sea are all one nature. Think of the Father as a root, and the Son as a branch, and of the Spirit as a fruit, for the substance in these three is one. The Father is a Son, S-U-N, with the sun as rays and the Holy Ghost as heat. Okay, so basically, some mysterious sense, the Father is the source of the other two. In that sense, he believes in the monarchy of the Father, that the Father is the ultimate source. Still, he thinks the one God is the triune God. So he immediately swings back to his Mysterian rhetoric. 
The Holy Trinity transcends by far every similitude and figure. So when you hear of an offspring of the Father, do not think of a corporeal offspring. And when you hear that there is a word, do not suppose him to be a corporeal word. And when you hear of the Spirit of God, do not think of wind and breath. Rather, hold your persuasion with a simple faith alone. For the concept of the Creator is arrived at by analogy from his creatures. Be persuaded, moreover, that the incarnate dispensation of the Son of God was begotten ineffably and without seed of the Blessed Virgin, believing him to be without confusion and without change both God and man, who for your sake worked all the dispensation. And to him by good works give worship and adoration, and venerate and revere the most holy Mother of God and ever-Virgin Mary as true Mother of God and all the saints as his attendants. Doing this, you will be a right worshiper of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, Father and Son and Holy Ghost, of the one divine nature, to whom be glory and honor and adoration forever and ever. Amen. The one divine nature there, that's, that's the triune God. The Trinity there, the undivided Trinity, is the triune God. Very quickly, in his book On the Orthodox Faith, he goes on at great length about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he reproduces a ton of language and riffs from particularly the Cappadocian Fathers, but possibly the clearest Trinitarian passage where there's a concept of a triune God is in chapter 8. This is right before a passage that might be an interpolation. It's on page 185 of the 20th century translation by Chase. So he's just talked about how the Father, Son, and Spirit are different from one another, how they have different features, and so it's wrong to just collapse them into the same one being. And so he's trying to say how there are not three gods in this picture, but really just one god. And in this short passage, he kind of throws out several different considerations. But my point is that his conclusion that he's driving towards is that the three are one god, that there's just one god here, a triune god. This is what he says. And again, we say that the three persons are in one another so as not to introduce a whole swarm of gods. By the three persons, we understand that God is uncompounded and without confusion. Right? So they're not parts of God, nor can you collapse them into one being. He continues, By the consubstantiality of the persons and their existence in one another, and by the indivisibility of the identity of will, operation, virtue, power, and, so to speak, motion, we understand that God is one. For God and his word and his spirit are really one God. Okay, so at the end he's using God to refer to the Father, a venerable and good tradition. But what he's saying is that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are one God. Right. One triune God. To me, it's clear that he's nervous that there being one God does not follow from what he said. That's why he piles on different considerations there, hoping that the reader will agree that it follows. But anyway, that's his conclusion, that the three of them are the same God. The triune God. Another clearly Trinitarian passage is in Book 2, Chapter 5, and it starts off by saying, Our God, who is glorified in Trinity and unity, himself made heaven and earth and all things that are in them. Right, the one God, the Creator, is the triune God. He doesn't think that the one God is the Father. 
although he does think that the Father is, quote, God, and that the Father is unique. His view is really the same as Gregory of Nazianzus's view, that the one divine nature exists in three beings, and that one divine nature is the triune God. As more recent Trinitarians would put it, there is one God who exists in three persons. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some concluding thoughts. Obviously, I hold to minority views in Christian theology, what's called Biblical Unitarian Theology and Christology. Our friend Dr. Branson also has a minority view. He thinks that the true teaching of the triad or the Trinity is just that the one true God is the Father, and he says, we don't need this idea of a tripersonal God. Well, you know, tell that to the majority of Trinitarians, both Western and Eastern, as best I can tell, what they're extremely proud of is precisely this idea of God as multipersonal, specifically God as tripersonal, God the Trinity. They think that's the distinctive Christian teaching and, you know, the profoundest theological truth. Next time I want to discuss definitions. I've just been talking about the history so far and the interpretation of a couple of historical figures so far, but he did strongly criticize my claim that early Christians before around the time of Augustine basically are Unitarian and not Trinitarian. He calls it a trick and a clever move and so on. And I don't think it is any of those things. So next time I want to discuss his proposed definitions of the terms Trinitarian and Unitarian as opposed to mine and see how they stack up and see how they can help us to make sense of the historical development of theology. This week's thinking music is the track 28 Ausens at Eton by Stefan Kartenberg. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.